Good evening, welcome to worship. I want to continue to extend that welcome. So glad that you're here, especially in the season that it is right now. I hope and pray that in your house you are all healthy, but I know uh, because I've seen people and I'm around people and I live with people that that's not the case. And uh, be careful out there. Use uh, disinfectant and wash your hands a lot and don't shake hands. We're the friendliest church that I have ever been to, uh, but don't be friendly in that way as you leave worship tonight. Uh, be fully confident in just saying a warm hello rather than shaking hands because you need to stay healthy. We have it in our house. My wife has, the, has influenza. Now you're all wondering, did I shake his hand tonight? I'm good. I promise. I'm good. I am completely healthy and we have quarantined her uh, and haven't seen her for days. So we trust that she's, no, I'm just kidding. But that clip that you just saw uh, is a clip from the TV show, the television show, Mad Men. We're finishing up the series that we've been going through as we've been looking at all of these binge-worthy shows uh, that we've experienced in the last few years. Mad Men is one of them that I hadn't seen before we started this series. When we went through the preaching schedule and we determined that we're going to look at all of these, we're going to look at... Uh, Breaking Bad, and we're going to look at Arrested Development, and we're going to, to look at Lost, and we're going to all of these shows. This was the one that I had picked that I hadn't seen. And so I would love to tell you that in the last month and a half, I've watched seven seasons of this show, but I do have somewhat of a life, and I haven't done that. But I did make it through just over the first season. Very acclaimed television show. Mad Men is about an advertising agency. Specifically, it's about the life of, of this main central character of Don Draper. And it's, about, it's called Mad Men because it's an advertising agency on Madison Avenue in New York in the 1960s is when most of the telev- uh, television show takes place. And the thing that's so interesting about this show and the thing that I've found that's been so captivating that makes me want to watch it more and more and more and more is because it uncovers as many good dramas do, whether that be a television show, whether that be a work of fiction, whether that be a play, whether that be a song, what it does is it uncovers a truth. And it starts to pull things back. And yeah, it's it's dramatized. And and, and yeah, it's, it's fictitious. There's a part of it when you watch it that you start to see yourself in it. And it's able to identify those things in a way, I believe, that makes it safer for us. So we can watch Mad Men, we can see all of the things that are at play, and we can talk about how corrupt it is, because it's very corrupt. And how there are no morals in the show or the characters of the show. Because there are no morals in the characters of the show. And we see these struggles that they have. And in it we see a window into our culture. Into our lives. Which we've also seen while we've been walking through the book of Genesis. This is the last week in our series. Genesis, a binge-worthy Bible series. This is the fifth week. And just as a matter of recap, we started week one and we talked about the story of Adam and Eve, the very beginning of creation, that there in the beginning of creation, that there was a fall, there was a a fracture, things were broken. And everything 
has been affected by that break. Week two, we talked about Cain and Abel and the, the rivalry that exists between these two siblings. Week three, we talked about Noah and about how God restored and God made new and God recreated, if you, if you will, through Noah and his family. And we talked about Abraham and Abraham and Sarah and God's faithfulness. Last week we talked about Jacob and Esau. That fact that Jacob is somebody who was renamed Israel and one of the things about Jacob is he's renamed Israel because he struggled with God but we also know that that also means that God struggled with him. There was this relationship. And today as we continue on, we're going to look using the backdrop of the show Mad Men and this character of Don Draper, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. Joseph takes up, the story of Joseph takes up most of uh, Genesis chapter 37 through 50, the very end of the book of Genesis. Once we turn the page over in Genesis chapter 50, we turn it over to the story of Exodus where we get to Moses and, and how God delivers his people. But, but the story of Joseph is what leads us to how God's people found themselves in Egypt. And we see that in the character of Joseph, much like the character of Don Draper, now don't, no, pause button. I'm not equating a, a television character from the show Mad Men and equating him to Don Draper, but I'm not saying that I'm not. Because what we see in this character of Donald Draper is somebody who is struggling to figure out what's at the center of his life. He's a mysterious character. The, the whole series, you're trying to figure out what you heard over and over and over in that opening clip. Who is this man? In some regards, he seems like the most confident person in the room. In other places, he seems like the most insecure person in the room. Sometimes he seems like he's this incredible deep person. And other times he seems like he's incredibly shallow. Sometimes he seems calm as the most serene piece of water that you could ever see. And other times he's just full of tumult. He's chaotic. And everybody wants to know who's Don Draper. And what we know is that there's something that lies in the center of his life that's affected him from the time he was a child. And that all of his life is a, a, a way of putting layers on top of layers to protect that which was at the center. But even though the layers exist, doesn't mean that that doesn't still direct him and affect him. As it does with you and as it does with me. I remember when I was in high school, my, my buddies and I, uh, we took a baseball at one time. 218 stitches uh, a baseball are, are, are sewn together with. And we took those apart. And I remember we took them apart and we started to unravel them. There's all of this twine that's underneath the two pieces of leather that encase this ball that allows it to be playable. And we unstrung the whole thing. And it was as if that string went for miles. 
We just kept on unraveling and unraveling and unraveling and unraveling. And it literally took us like 35 to 40 minutes to get to the center of a baseball. And in the very center of the baseball was a very small rubber ball or cork ball. And everything that surrounds it is there to protect it, to do what that ball is there to do. As a fan of baseball, I've seen the game change from decade to decade, from season to season. And sometimes there's a lively ball and sometimes there's a dead ball. All determined by what is at the center. Because what's at the center changes everything. Just like our lives. When you strip back all of the layers... When you peel back everything that is a part of your life, what is at the middle? Psychologists have been speaking about this for centuries. Studying what makes us who we are. What makes us tick? What guides us? What directs us? What allows a person to have compassion and empathy? What gives a person a sense of their self? And what it is, is they determine it's your ego. Now, ego is a word that has a lot of baggage to it because sometimes we use ego in a way to talk about somebody who's egocentric or somebody who's too focused on themselves. But the ego, by definition, literally is an identity, an awareness. The ability to answer the question, who, who am I? And that's important. We all need to be able to answer the question of, of who am I? What is it that's at the center? Because you and I, in our lives, we have something that exists in this innermost chamber of our lives that affects everything we do. Remember when I was teaching high school English, I taught high school English for two years. And one of my favorite, now this is going to make you turn your opinion of me really quick. One of my favorite things that I was able to teach was Shakespeare. Love Shakespeare. And we would do a unit on Shakespeare. And we would, we would do one of his, he had broad uh, subjects of plays that he wrote. He had his, his, his comedies, Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy he had his histories that was like Henry VIII, but we would really focus on some of his tragedies. Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet. My favorite was his work, Julius Caesar. My favorite play, my favorite work of fiction is Julius Caesar, written by Shakespeare. And as I would teach it to, to my students, I, I would talk about how in every tragedy, there is a main character who has a fatal flaw. Something that lies at the center of who they are that literally becomes their undoing. That it becomes so excessive that it ruins who they are. And it ruins it not just for them, but for everybody around them. For Julius Caesar, it was his, it was his pride. Same as it was and is for Don Draper. Same as it is at the beginning of the story with Joseph. 
I remember telling my students that pride was something that was fatal to Caesar and they would always buck against this notion and we need to unpack that because you might say to me, Jeremy, pride isn't necessarily a bad thing and I'm not saying it is. There is a sense that pride can be a wonderful thing when it's held in check. I have two kids that I am incredibly proud of. Just before worship, my son had a, a basketball game today. Bridget's at home, so I took him to his basketball game. I dropped him off. I had to leave early. But before I left, he scored his first four points in like 15 games. And before we were getting to the game, we were driving to the game, and he said, Dad, I just want to score today. I just want to score today. That's all he wanted to do. He's been outside in the snow shooting hoops day after day after day, pretending that he's just going to make one. And at halftime, his team had eight points, and he had four of them. And I was so proud of him. I took such great joy in him. On Friday night, I was able to go to the daddy-daughter dance here at Hope. So if you were out to eat anywhere in the metro area and you saw a lot of dads looking uncomfortable and a lot of little girls looking really cute, they were going to a daddy-daughter dance. We had over a thousand students that were dads and daughters that were here on Friday. It was bananas and a lot of really good dancing girls and a lot of really awkward dads and it was just awesome. But on Friday, as we got ready to go to the dance, and my daughter, Jade, is just so excited about it. She got all dressed up, and she was practicing her dance moves in our living room, because we roll like that in our house. Turn on the Spotify and let them just go nuts. And she was dancing, and she was showing us everything. John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever, he would have blushed. She was so good. And man, I was proud of her. I had pride in being her dad. It's the Olympics. You've probably lost hours and hours and hours of your life already and it's only been on officially for two days. And as we watch the Olympics, and I love the Olympics. My family dressed up in red, white, and blue yesterday because it's the Olympics. And as we watch the Olympics, one of my favorite things is when they do the medal ceremony and people stand up there and they stand and they have a sense of pride in where they've come from. They're proud to be a representative of their country. Pride's not necessarily a bad thing at all, unless it's taken to the hilt. St. Augustine, one of the early leaders in the church, First few centuries, St. Augustine says uh, pride, when it gets to the, 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 the bad side of things, pride is the love of one's own excellence. When you become consumed with who you are and what you do. When you believe and begin to operate by the fact that you are the center of your world. That your significance is found in the value of whatever you play. That, that your, your significance is how well I do whatever it is. And you fall in love with it. 
There is a, a book that came out probably about a decade ago. It was when I first got to Hope. Uh, I read this book with Pastor Richard, which was a trip. It was super fun. My wife would always know when I spent too much time with Pastor Richard because I would come home and I would just sound smart. And I would talk in certain ways and she'd say, you've been talking with Richard. And I'd say, why? She's like, because you're just saying things that you don't usually say. But Richard and I, my first year at Hope, we, we did this book with one another. It's called Lead Like Jesus, an incredible book, rich of a lot of leadership principles. But talks about this sense of, of, of ego and what our ego will do to us. Blanchard and Hodges say that we can look at ego and we can look at it in one of two ways. One, it becomes consumed with the self, the love of one owns excellence. And in that, ego is defined as it's edging God out. Two, it has a healthy sense of the middle, seeing that who I am is who I was created to be. And that's exalting God only. Pride's a wonderful thing when we see it as a reflection of who God created us to be. The Bible talks about this over and over and over. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. Paul says in both of those places, you have been given a gift. And you are a gift. And you've been created the way you've been created on purpose for a purpose. And what you do matters. And whatever you do, do it excellently. Do it in a way that when people see you, they'll be struck by who you are and by what you do. Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 5. What does he say? You are the light of the world and let your light shine. Let it shine. So that when people see you and they see who you are and they see what you do, will they take notice of you? No. That when people see you, they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, that's the difference. That's the place where Joseph, at the beginning of the story, and Joseph, just like any other person, is an incredibly complex character. If I were to say Joseph, probably the thing that you would think of, if you have no knowledge of Joseph whatsoever, you've probably heard of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Incredible production. But Joseph, well, his father is Jacob, and you'd think by the end of the story from last week that Jacob would know better. Because Jacob had his own problems with his siblings. But as we see in the beginning of the story of Joseph, Jacob is still wrestling with God. God is still wrestling with him. And Joseph is one of the youngest children in the family. And Joseph is loved by his father more than anybody else. You could say in a sense that that becomes his identity. His sense of who he is is found in his son, which doesn't go well. And parents and grandparents, remember that. Don't ever let your children's success or failure change your opinion of who they are. Let it be theirs. Let them enjoy their peaks 
and also wrestle through their valleys. Our job isn't to make them be who we want them to be. Our job is to walk alongside them so they can discover who they were created to be. Because when we start to make them the center of our universe, it doesn't go well, and it didn't for Joseph. And Joseph had a gift. Joseph had an incredible gift. A gift that had been given to him by God. Joseph had the ability to, 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 to have a dream, to, to have a vision. We, we read about this in the very beginning of the story. You heard Robert read it just a few minutes ago. It said that Joseph had these dreams, but the thing is, is that Joseph started to see his dreams and his talents as being the center of his world. He starts to ruin the relationship he has with his brothers. He says, hey, let me tell you about this dream that I had. <laughs> no tact whatsoever. Just a couple weeks ago, my daughter went to a, a birthday party. And as she was at the birthday party, I picked her up. And the present that she got for going to a birthday party was banana. I mean, the value of what she went home with was greater than the value of the present she gave. And I thought, well, that's backwards. But it was phenomenal. She had, this, she had this grab bag full of incredible stuff like candy and markers and a coloring book and a little tiara thing, which was really cute on her, not good for me. But anyway... And I told her, because I knew that my son was bummed that he didn't go, get to go to a birthday party. I told her, I said, Jade, when you get home, enter quietly. Trey asks you how the birthday party went. Just say, eh, it was okay. Don't take all your presents. Don't rub them in his face because it's not going to go well. It's going to cause a little bit of friction. So we get home, get in the kitchen door, and Trey says, how was the birthday party, Jade? And she said, look at all these things I have. And he said, can I use them? And she said, absolutely not. And they started to fight. Because their stuff had started to be here. See, it plays all over the place. Doesn't have to be anything great or huge. Becomes that thing that we elevate that makes us feel as if we have more or we are more. That's what happened to Joseph. And his brothers couldn't stand him. Would you have been able to? Maybe you have a sibling like that. <laughs> Maybe you have a coworker like that. Maybe you are like that. Did you hear that in the reading? It says they hated him all the more, not just because of his dreams, but because of the way that he talked about it. That his identity started reading between the lines, started to be wrapped up in himself. There's no life there. There's no life there. that never leads any place good. It doesn't. It didn't for Joseph, as we'll see in just a few minutes. It doesn't for you. Neither did it for Don Draper. The first season of the show, 
This mysterious man is willing to win at all costs in every single facet of his life. He is the center of his universe and his marriage and his relationships all suffer because of it. Because his pride, unhealthy sense of self, his pride leads him down horrible paths. How do you measure this? In your life, what is this measured with? Safe to say that we all want to live a satisfying life, right? That, that would be a safe statement, I believe. That most of us, when we get up on most days, we, we want our days to go well. We want the days for the people around us to go well. We want things to go the way that we want them to go. And when they do, we consider it Success. But what is it? It can be elusive, can it? It can be incredibly hard to attain at times when it's placed in the wrong things because they'll never be enough. And in the end, when we base it on ourselves, it ends to our downfall. As it did for Joseph, as it did for Don Draper, as it does for all people. It's Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. You know it better as pride goes before the fall. There is a point in life when it's up to us, when it's up to who we are and what we can do and how I can orchestrate it. And when I get to a place in my life where I will literally win at all costs. And when I don't care what the collateral damage is, I'm just going to go and I'm just going to do it. Nobody wins. That's not success. There's no life in that. You know that. I know that far too well. Far too well. When I get to those places in my life where my ego isn't about exalting God, where my ego is about edging God out, saying in order to do it your way, God is going to cost me way too much. It goes much better when it's, when it's my way. Folks, it's not success. It's not, it's not life. Joseph himself realized this. He displays his coat. He shares his dreams. His brothers can't stand him to the point where the sibling rivalry, the dis disdain that they have for their brother, they literally, they, first they say, let's kill him. One of his, the, the, Reuben, one of the brothers says, no, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into that cistern, a big well. Let's throw him in there and we'll take his robe, this display, this symbol of dad's love for him let's take we'll dip it in in blood and we'll tell our father that he's been killed and that's what they do one of the brothers is going to go back and rescue him and tell him to get along his way but by the time he gets back joseph has been 
taken and he's been sold into slavery. As the story goes on, Joseph uh, ends up going into slavery. He ends up uh, being a servant in the, one of the most powerful homes in all of Egypt. And he ends up being accused of something he didn't do, so he ends up in prison. And while Joseph is in prison, <laughs> the same gifts he's had, the same way that he's been wired still exist. And so while he's in prison, he's able to interpret dreams. That's how God wired him. No matter how God's wired you, he's wired you. Your choice and all of our choices is how are we going to use that? What's success? Is it success to make sure that we use whatever we have to exalt ourselves or is it to be able to lift others and exalt them and in turn glorify God? So Joseph starts to do this in, in prison and he becomes known for it and some of the people he was in prison with, they get out and sooner or later the, the Pharaoh, the most powerful person in all of Egypt, has a dream. Nobody can understand what the dream means. Until somebody remembers this guy by the name of Joseph. And Joseph makes his way to Pharaoh and Pharaoh tells Joseph these dreams that he's had. He says, I heard that you're the one that can interpret my dreams for me. Now something changed for Joseph. Somewhere along the journey, Joseph realized that this wasn't something for himself, but it was something that God had created him to do. Joseph says, it's beyond my power to do this. But God can tell you what it means and he can put your mind at ease, your life at ease. And others around you. We live in a world and a culture that is so incredibly short-fused right now. And we forget this incredible opportunity we have to, to affect the lives of the people around us. On Wednesday, it's Ash Wednesday, kicks off the season of Lent. And just like we have season of Advent that leads up to, to Christmas, we have a season of Lent that leads up to Easter. And during Advent and during Lent, we do these special projects as a church. We realize that when we put God at the center of who we are as a church above everything else, above attendance, above programs, above everything else, things tend to go better and I can't wait. I can't tell you now. But I can't wait to tell you. See what I did? Now you have to come to church next week. But I can't wait. I can't wait. I cannot wait. During Advent, we talked about a voice of hope where we were bettering the lives of women in war-torn countries. This Lent is going to be amazing. When we measure our success differently. When it's not about what we can do, but what God can do through us.
See, sometimes when we get to that place in our lives where it's all about us, we get to this place where we look back on the, the, the past and we say, if we could only go back and we could only live the way that we used to live, then that's the whole purpose of our lives, to, is to go back and, and to recreate these experiences we've had again and again and again and again. And Joseph very well could have said to himself, if I could only go back when it was just myself and my father and all my brothers were working and I was wearing the robe, then that's what would dictate success in my life, is to go back to the way that it once was. But the reality is that it's not that way anymore. But we have a God who doesn't want us to live in the past, but a God who invites us to live into the future by his call. When it's based on this, our lives are empty and they're shallow. Not to say that we're shallow, but there isn't any depth to it. There isn't any sustainability to it. So what we see from Don Draper, when it was based on him and it was based on the fact that everything in his life, those pictures were representations of all of the ways in which his life was falling apart. Sure, on the outside, everything looked wonderful. He was the most, one of the most powerful people in this entire firm, advertising firm. But he needed something more. So do you. So do I. Our lives can't be based on what and only what we bring to it. It has to be about something bigger. That no matter where it is and no matter what's going on, that when we live for God and when God becomes the center of everything about who we are, it allows us to endure every circumstance. The Bible promises that. It's why Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God above everything else, above everything else. The center of your life, the inner core of who you are is seated in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because then we know that this is not the end. Joseph had found himself in a prison where he had no life, but he remembered the God who had given them the gift. And there comes a day where he gets out of prison and now Joseph's the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And who comes crying for help? But his brothers. <laughs> when this is based on this, there's no forgiveness. You did me wrong once, I'll tell you where you can go. But it wasn't the end for Joseph. His brothers come and he extends grace to them. Sound familiar? I mean, this is a story that's going to, it's not just a New Testament concept of one who would extend grace to the one who is in need. This is a theme that goes all throughout Scripture. From Genesis chapter 3 on is God's redemptive and powerful work in the world to bring us back into a relationship with him. His brothers look at him and they say, please have mercy on him. And he says, don't, don't think about something, some painful event of the past, but think about, think about the future and where we can go. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He is a God of new beginnings. He is a God of new beginnings that makes all things new every day of our lives. That when we live this way, when we live with God being at the center, we literally do what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, that the kingdom would come to earth. 
That resurrection would happen in our lives. And that is available for you. Resurrection today, tonight, in your life. New beginning, the kingdom has come. That the same power that conquered the grave is here for you tonight. Open your heart. Because he ran out of the grave. It's a glorious day. It's the way that the book of Genesis just funnels us right to a story of a new beginning. Don't miss it. Let it be the story of your life. The very beginning, it falls apart, but at the end, there's redemption. There's always redemption. There's always redemption. There is always redemption. God's kingdom is redemption. It's glorious. It's his kingdom. Brings us right back to the Garden of Eden, the way it was all created to be.